In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. Experiencers are emotionally intelligent. It's the greats who are emotionally retarded. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. Stories from psilocybin and ayahuasca trips are childish and silly. Especially when they come from shaman and doctors. Anything goes with paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. Jeff Ritzman. Ah, uh, here we are again. Fancy meeting you here on this desert island we call Paratopia. Are we still doing that? Well, we've got to <laughs> we've got to keep the plot options open for the fiftieth because you know we'll do something grand for that. It's coming up quick. Yeah, five more episodes. Uh, so it's always good to remind people that we used to have a plot to the show. In any event, um, so tonight's guest is Susan Kornacki, who I met at the Harvard meetup that you were supposed to go to, and uh, what's the word? Right. Didn't. Right. <laughs> but maybe next time. Sorry. <laughs> well, one by one, you'll be meeting them all on the show. Well, probably not all, but enough. Um, and Susan is one of those. She gave a presentation on emotional intelligence. Um, and she goes around the world and she speaks at universities and speaks at colleges and to businesses about practical applications of emotional intelligence to, say, business models. Um, but and she'll be explaining what that is. Yeah. Too. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're like, what? well, we'll get into that. Um, but at the, at the experiencer gathering, she was presenting, um, data on, well, near death experiences, um, alien abductions, uh, and transcendental meditators, you know, sort of the things that they all have in common. Um, hmm. which I thought was pretty fascinating. So hopefully we'll get into some of that here tonight. Susan Kornacki, go! Paratopia. You know, we here uh, are constantly trying to look at new angles, different angles, new to us, probably just different angles, um, on consciousness. And so why should tonight be any different? We have with us uh, one of the preeminent... Emotional intelligence experts, Susan Kornacki. And uh, Susan, first of all, thank you for coming on Paratopia. Welcome. <laughs> and uh, why don't you, uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground here, I think, in ways that people are going to be surprised. Um, but let's start off light. Um, I, I, explain for our listeners what emotional intelligence is. I remember hearing about it maybe in the 90s as sort of, the thing that was more important than IQ, um, uh, EQ. So is, does that still hold water? Is that still true? What is it and uh, what sets it apart from IQ? Why is it important? 
Okay. Um, well, those are a couple of questions there, so let me see if I can uh, answer all of those. So what, uh, there's a couple of different concepts of emotional intelligence, so I'm, I'm going to kind of approach it, what I call from the academic theoretical standpoint first and then tell you my philosophy and my opinion on it. Um, so the, the model that I work with is called the Maricelle uh, Caruso model, and what that is is they look at emotional intelligence as an ability. Um, so basically, you know, some of us have certain abilities. Um, let's say some of us are very good at hand-eye coordination. Um, you know, we're born with that, although if we practice more, um, then we can get better at it. Um, so this kind of follows the same philosophy. <clears throat> and emotional intelligence from the ability model perspective is that we can identify our emotions we can use our emotions, meaning we can feel emotion in ourselves and also transfer it to others, um, understand where the emotion comes from, and then be judicious in managing that emotion. So sometimes, you know, it's good for us to actually be emotional about something, and then sometimes, you know, we can get ourselves into trouble if we're too emotional about something. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the ability model. There's a couple of other models out there that um, incorporate other aspects such as like optimism is being part of emotional intelligence and self-awareness is being part of emotional intelligence. Um, the, the thing that I like in terms of the ability model that I work with is it really encompasses all of that um, but sticks with it as being a hard science. And I think because of that, we've been able to make a pretty bad pretty big impact with people in terms of you know, educating them about what this is and then helping them develop skills and abilities around this. Um, the, you asked the question, is it more important than IQ? I mean, mm -hmm. really, the thing is, it depends. Um, I think in the world that we're living in right now, it's incredibly important. Uh, <laughs> it's huge because uh, so many things are, are you know, destructive right now to the, the fact that we are not appropriately feeling um, the impact of our decisions that, that we make on other people. Um, so I think that's real huge from a, uh, again, an academic or business world standpoint or even a school standpoint. Uh, one would say that, you know, uh, it's really important to have IQ and EQ uh, or emotional intelligence is a huge plus to that. So, you know, uh, again, it depends on when, you, when we ask it. There's a real global question, but then there's, you know, a real specific question. It's kind of like depending upon the audience or you know, the person that you're dealing with or what it is that they're doing for work or, or what it is that they're actually performing in the world. So um, personally, I think it's, it's, it's like anything, and it's good to have a, a nice balance of both. Uh, well, would it be fair to say that you could be a psychopathic or sociopathic genius but could not have a high EQ? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and not that I know much about psychopaths, <laughs> thank God. Um, but, you know, one would say you know, a person that goes out and, you know, commits some horrific crimes, just think about the situation in Ohio, for example. Um, I think that the man pleaded insane today, which seems logical. Um, it, these, some people cannot literally feel what it is that they are doing to somebody else. And when you can't feel what it is that you're doing to somebody else, then you are literally disconnected from that person. And, you know, that causes you to do a whole host of, of really destructive things. Mm -hmm. And have you done studies or have studies been done uh, re regarding, well, I guess cross-cultural studies regarding EQ? 
Like how it breaks down in various societies? Um, geez, there's probably research on that in terms of um, something that I know that I could tell you off the top of my head. You know, what what we know is that every every person is different. Every family is different. So you can grow up in a family and, you know, maybe you're very uh, expressive and, and your family wasn't. Uh, so you were seen as, as like the odd one in the family. Um, so certain cultures, you know, and this is stereotypical, Italian culture is very expressive um, with their emotions, maybe not so great at managing them, um, and maybe similar with the Irish. Again, these are, these are generalizations, but um, you'd have to really, you know, look through the research and the literature in order to, to talk intelligently about it and give what I would call like a real quantitative type of an answer. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference, or have they looked? In, has anyone looked in the differences between, say, uh, a Dalai Lama type, a spiritual guru type, and Joe Sixpack? Yeah, <laughs> um, I, was, I was wondering. I was wondering if like Joe Sixpack actually has a better time, but I don't know about that because the Dalai is always smiling, and Joe Sixpack, you know, uh, I don't know too much about that. Well, the Dalai Lama has done a lot of work with the Mind and Life Institute, and Dan Goldman, who's another name in the world of emotional intelligence. And, um, I mean, if you were to look at the Dalai Lama, I think that is somebody who uh, really is a, a great example of being emotionally intelligent. I mean, some of the, the work that he's written is just absolutely fantastic. So, you know, you can say that the Dalai Lama is definitely somebody that um, embodies what we would consider emotional intelligence. And, and we can talk a little bit more about this, but you know, I've got some theories on if you are able to manage your emotions and you are able to know what it is that you're feeling in that nanosecond of when you're feeling it and you acknowledge it, then you being somebody who has that capacity to then what I would call transcend into being more spiritually intelligent, then, then that opens up for you. So you really have to get a handle on the emotional piece, I think, before you can really move into the spiritual piece. And I, I know by saying that there's probably some folks out there that, you know, work with spirituality that, you know, might be going, ah, well, I have spiritual experiences, and, and you know, how can you discount that? I'm not talking about the experience. I'm actually talking about, you know, really understanding and knowing these metaphysical experiences and then using them intelligently into your whole self. Uh, well, on that note, um, my favorite integral philosopher, Ken Wilber, says that um, you could be a spiritual 10 and still be a psychologically shallow 2 or 3. Um, does that register for you? Um, see, again, uh, yeah, you can be that. And, and you know, I'll, I'll share something that's pretty personal, but I think it's real relevant. Um, a couple of years ago, um, and when I say a couple of years ago, really, we're talking about three years ago, um, my family has a, a really deadly genetic disease, and um, you know, I kind of, like, feared this thing my whole life and, and, and always tried to, like, live my life pretty quickly to make sure that, you know, I got everything in just in case that I had this because there's no cure for it. And um, I found out about two and a half, almost three years ago, that my brother had it. I'm the youngest of five in my family. And when I found out he had it, it was literally like my whole fear around this thing just caved in on me. It collapsed in. So the fear just, just was like was out of control at that point. And here's somebody that works with emotional intelligence, and, um, you know, I was having a really, really hard time with this. Um, so I started to see a lot of spiritual people 
um, to really understand how they do healing, you know, because, again, there's no cure for this. So I thought if this thing is inside of me, well, I'm not going to wait, you know, eight to ten years for it to manifest. And maybe there's something that I can do about it now. And when I was meeting all these different spiritual people, and I really went on this journey for the last three years, what I started to notice is there were some people that they were very talented in terms of channeling or, you know, transferring energy, but they themselves as a, as a whole person were not able to, to manage their emotions on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I thought it was odd. I mean, it struck me as something that was really odd, and, and I didn't expect that. I think I walked in with this silly, probably, expectation that if you are a spiritual person doing spiritual work, then you, you have to have a handle on, on the emotional stuff on a day-to-day basis. And, and that wasn't the case, and that really, really surprised me. Um, so getting back to what you said about Wilbur, yes, that can be the case. Although in today's day and age, I don't think that's optimal. I really think you know, we're talking about being able to, to have a balance of, of both. So here I'm talking about having you know, a balance of IQ, a, a balance of um, you know, spiritual intelligence, using these terms, um, but also the emotional, you know, really being able to integrate all of this and keep it in check. Well, let's discuss what what is spiritual intelligence. I mean, we can relate to emotional and and just normal uh, cognitive intelligence. What how, do we have any proof of the existence of spiritual intelligence? What are we talking about? You know what? I, I, here's the funny thing. If you look, if you if you type in the terms, because I'm big on this and trying to you know, try to understand, somebody comes out with a term and then they put their name next to it, and all of a sudden. You know, now you've got on Wikipedia and you've got all these, these terms, right? I don't think that there's anything that I, I've seen that gives it a good definition. How I look at it is this, is metaphysical experiences that you take, that you can acknowledge the experience, maybe acknowledge the complexity around that experience, and how well you're able to integrate that into your, you can call it infinite, soul, your infinite self, or your eternal self, and how well you really integrate that in into your day-to-day basis. Um, if I can provide you with an example of that, I went to, you know, part of this uh, journey to learn to, you know, understand uh, maybe a non-traditional way to do healing around this potential disease. Um, I went to Peru, and I took part in an ayahuasca ceremony. I've never done... Do you know what ayahuasca is by any chance? Uh, I think that's Jeff's call. Jeff! <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we've been dealing oh, with yeah. ayahuasca and DMT and all that stuff on this show recently. All right, all right, very good then. So, so feel free to jump in or, or you know, and clarify something if, if I've missed something or ask a question. Um, and so I never did anything like that before, and I thought, oh man, you know, I, I've had these, you know, these these extraterrestrial, extraordinary experiences my whole life, and. I don't know what I'm going to see when I do this stuff. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know. You know, I, I was a little bit freaked out by it, but I said, you know what? I need to do this completely and fully in order to really, you know, absorb this and, and you know, see what it is that I see and, you know, see if this, this can, can heal me. And it was very much called to go uh, to Peru uh, to do this. And as I came out of the experience and was talking to um, this Australian guy after the experience. It was like the day after. Um, you know, I was talking to him and I said, oh, so what happened to you? And he was telling me. He was telling me he saw all these colors and then he saw these you know, different animals. And, 
flat out like, well, what do you think that means for you? He's like, I don't know, but it was really wild, man. And uh, I'm like, well, that's it. Like, <laughs> that's it. I don't, I, I didn't get that. I mean, there's, I saw a lot of stuff. And um, I thought to myself, so whoever I am, you know, this, this, I'm this physical being is right here, but I'm also, you know, this eternal soul is inside of this, this physical being, you know, here and, and maybe elsewhere. So what I saw, how do I in- integrate that in? Do I have to do something differently with my life as a result of these experiences? Do I feel different energetically? You know, how do I now show up in the world with having these experiences? And um, and there's another example, and this really was the catalyst for it. This is my, my own thinking or knowledge, but there's a, a Spanish guy that was there with his daughter, and he's about 50 years old, and his daughter was about 15. And he makes the journey. And so, you know, you go on the UI walk through, flying down to Peru, to basically hike through the jungle. Um, there's no electricity. You know, your cell phone doesn't work. Um, it's, it's rough. It's definitely rough. I mean, you're sleeping in a, uh, in a hut, and it's, it's bare bones. And, um, you know, I'm making it sound bad because, in a sense, it was, but it was an incredibly beautiful experience uh, as well. Mm-hmm. But this, this Spanish guy, you know, hiked in with his daughter. And we were talking, and he said, you know, I used to be addicted to LSD. And he said, I actually found that doing ayahuasca helped me to to get off of LSD. And I'm like, how does that make any sense? And he explained that he had, what he would call it, he had demons inside of him. He had done things in his life. Um, he had had four abortions with a couple of different women. And he said in one of his first ayahuasca experiences, he saw four dead babies laid out in front of him. And he knew when he came out of that experience that he had to do something about that. Um, And so what he did is he went to each of the women that he uh, had gotten pregnant, and they did a ceremony to lay their spirits to rest. And so he knew that the deeper thing that was coming up for him was really important for his soul to be in balance, like in this world. So he knew that in order for him to, to successfully go on to whatever the next part of his journey is, and once he leaves this world and, and dies, that this is a piece that he needed to clear up here and now. So I look at that and I say, that's something, that's spiritual intelligence. You're able to take that experience integrate it into who you are, into your being, and actually do something about it. Well, you see, now, I have this little plan all mapped out. You know, we'll talk about EQ, we'll get into the spiritual intelligence, and then I'll spring the personal alien abduction slash experiencer questions on you. It would be a nice surprise for the audience. But, man, you just came right out with it. <laughs> so, oh, I'm sorry. No, that's great. This is going to turn into a free-for-all. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw away the script. and. Yes. No script, man. You said no script. So. I know. I know. In my head, though, you know, I build things. I'm a, I'm a writer, so I build story arcs. But screw it. Let's go free for it. I want to ask you. So I've not done ayahuasca. Jeff and I both decided to do psilocybin mushrooms um, as our own experiment um, because we are experiencers and we've read, you know, Rick Strassman's um, God Molecule book um, or Spirit Molecule book uh, and Graham Hancock's Supernatural, et cetera, et cetera, and. Um, uh, they never use experiencers in their um, in their experiments, but then they talk about having abduction-like experiences or reports of them, and therefore conclude that it's all the same thing. So, 
we decided to uh, to do our own experiment, and uh, and it wasn't the same. There were similarities, um, but let me ask you. Well, I'll ask you that question next. I guess was it similar or the same for you? But really, I want to ask since you did ayahuasca, we had Graham Hancock on, and he said that he pretty much always when he does ayahuasca, and I think he said he's done it in excess of five hundred times. Am I right? Oh, wow. Well, he he had done it at the X conference. I think he had mentioned that he had done it something like sixty plus, and it it, oh. it had it had exceeded that when he came on our show. Okay, uh, well then I'm grossly exaggerating, but whatever he is, no, he, I, I'm a sorry. lot. Yeah, no, I guess it was a few hundred times he dove in uh, the seas of Japan. But okay, I got them confused. But in any event, so sixty plus times, and he. Um, he always seems to go to this forest and commune with the definitely female spirit or goddess uh, that takes the form of a serpent that sort of wraps around him and, and leans its head on his shoulder, and they work out psychological issues together. <laughs> uh, and, th- and that it's, the trips always seem to be about working on his own issues. Um, so you went to a forest area. Did you, did you have any of that? Is it a uniform experience? No, um, no, I did not have that. Um, the, geez, I didn't have that at all. Um, I, again, so maybe this is helpful. I, I, the, the level of focus and determination that I had going into this experience was so, um, and, and what I mean by that is my, you know, finding out that my brother had this, this deadly disease, basically the gist of it is that my brother will be gone in the next 10 to 13 years. My sister also, and this was in January, I found that she had it as well. So, you know, it was like, are you kidding me that my older brother and my older sister had this? They have children, um, and their children are between 18 and 21 years old. And I'm very, very close to my family. I'm very close to these kids. I mean, you know, incredibly close to them. So I was firm when I went in there. I wanted to understand, because this is a disease, either you're born with it or not. It's not like cancer or something else that you develop along the way. You're either born with it or you're not. Um, so I started to understand that um, this is a, a like a kind of like a, a genetic. It goes back. There's like an ancestry um, aspect of it as well. So I wanted to understand, knowing what I know, that um, energy propagates into physical matter. So somehow the the energy is disrupted before the soul comes into the body. And that piece I, I, I kind of knew. I didn't know it, you know, super clearly, but I, I knew it enough. And um, How do you know my it? goal, just through my experiences, <laughs> basically seeing energy first, then you actually see it transform into physical matter. So um, it, seeing it in the experiences, it, seeing it in those. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, and a couple, you know, more than, more than at least four times. So, yeah, and, and a couple of times was really explicit um, in in experience seeing it, how the energy, you know, it was something with energy first, and then it literally like slowed down and it moved into physical matter. Um, so, so that piece, like again, I, I kind of knew. Um, so I was firm in understanding how the disease gets in. Like, where does it come from? How does it get in? And then how do you heal around it? So 
you know, when I say I was firm, I mean that focus. And that t- that stuff tastes absolutely atrocious. I have no dealings with mushrooms. I, I don't shrooms. I don't know how it tastes. I don't know I even know like how you ingest it. If you do ingest it, I don't know what you do with it. Mm. Um, but this stuff like tastes like like chewing tobacco that somebody spit out in a cup, like a whole football team. I mean, this thing was like absolutely atrocious. And That's good eating. <laughs> Good eating, take your ayahuasca. But, you know, the thing was, it's, you're traveling down to Peru. You're in an all-natural environment. You know, the birds are there. The massive trees are there. The energy that exists in that place uh, is just absolutely amazing. Um, the, the silence in terms of, you know, no um, external um, man-made noise. I mean, this is all completely indigenous and um, stayed with, I wouldn't call them a, a tribe, it was a family, but they really, I mean, they lived off the land, there was nothing contemporary that they um, did, although I did see a cell phone every now and then, uh, that, that was about it, but um, needing to understand how the disease comes in and then how you heal around it. So my experience actually was about that. I saw um, I saw the disease come in, which was, I could see, literally was a spiritual affliction. Um, it came in, this entity attached itself to the DNA and then absorbed itself into the body. And then I was shown how to do a healing around it um, and what I specifically needed to do around healing with this disease. Then um, the other aspect of it, I then look over and I see the Dalai Lama sitting next to me. It's kind of interesting that you brought his name up. And I had felt like I had gotten away from Buddhism for, for, for quite a few years, and I was pursuing all these, these other things related to the ET stuff and to try to understand that better. And I kind of felt bad that I, I got away from it. And I look over, and he looks, he's sitting right next to me. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, I'm in this experience, but he can't be sitting right next to me. But I can hear him. He's actually chanting different than what the shamans were chanting in the ceremony. So I rubbed my eyes, and I said, oh, I must be dreaming this. Um, I grabbed my chair. I wait another couple of seconds. I look back over, and he's still there. And he points at me, and he says, rah, 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 rah. Whatever, whatever he said. I, di- I didn't uh, know verbally what it meant, but I, I knew basically what he was saying. He said, you need to lay down. I- I'm, I'm going to help to take care of you now. And he did. And, um, you know, to this day, it's like, uh, was it him um, or was it, you know, uh, another being that, that looked like him to help out in this experience? So um, I, I didn't see the, the, the other stuff that Graham Hancock saw, um, but what I got out of it was really amazing. And then the, the kicker to this is, you know, I drew um, some of the, the things that I saw in the experience. And then the Australian kid that I was telling you about, had a book called The Cosmic Serpent, and I didn't read anything on DMT. I didn't read anything about the stuff before I went down. Um, And in the book is the exact drawing of what I had drawn out um, a couple hours earlier of what I saw in my experience. Um, And it's called, I think it's called The the Sky Rope. Uh, If you look at The Cosmic Serpent, you'll see um, there's a picture in there, and that is what I was shown um, to use and do uh, in order to, to do a healing around this. So, I mean, it just, like, kind of blew me away. I was like, whoa, this is this is, this is more than I felt. And I've been still processing that, and that was in March of this year. It's interesting because, you know, of course, logical Western whitey part of me, you know, is constantly going, well, that couldn't literally have been true. There couldn't literally have been a spirit or something that attached itself to the DNA. You didn't literally see the Dalai Lama, but... 
If the outcome is that you're literally healed of something, who cares if it's metaphorical or not? Yeah. You know, you have the physical consequences, and if it's got a repeatability and something that you can do, and now you can call yourself a healer if you can, I don't know that you can, but if that's what you're saying, then then it doesn't matter, does it, what what terminology we put on these things or what the actual vision of it is. Well, you know, and it's real interesting because here, here's where this stuff starts to actually connect back to emotional intelligence. And this is what, now, for, for years I kept thinking there's got to be a way that this stuff connects. There's got to be a way. And it would drive me crazy because it seemed like the, what I call like the spiritual world, the extraordinary experiences and the stuff that I was doing in my day-to-day work life, the emotional intelligence stuff for businesses and, and universities, you know, it seemed like uh, these two roads have to meet at some point, and, and they weren't. But then there's something that, that dawned on me, that if something is jarring you enough, like whether it be a vision or something emotionally, that has an effect on you. So because it has an effect on you, it's altering you in, in some way, shape, or form. Um, and we know that through some of the emotional intelligence research that um, you could be sitting down, you know, watching a movie. You're not experiencing, you know, the the fear that the person in the movie is experiencing, but yet it's having an effect on you, and then it's affecting you in terms of the emotion that you hold and then some of the actions that you choose to take afterwards. So you don't necessarily have to have that experience of what you're seeing and what, what is, you know, actually happening on television, but the fact that you're watching it and having an emotional experience is sometimes the same as actually having that physical experience. Mm-hmm. So there you go. That just proved your point, and there's research that validates that in terms of, um, you know, it's like you don't remember what you did last week in terms of maybe like a task, but you do remember something that was really emotional for you. Well, um, the other thing is you're saying this, it's dawning on me, is that... Um metaphor in just in mental terms of just mental realm um metaphor is higher than literal uh you've got the literal surface of something and then you've got what you can read into it um you've got meaning etc cetera, etc cetera, and then you've got this sort of abstract thing called metaphor which are sort of agreeances so why should something that is spiritual or even higher mental or whatever something in this of this other realm of thing that you take ayahuasca and access, access, why should that just be as cold and dry and literal and surface um, in appearance as we would want it to be? And why do we want it to be when that actually indicates that it is uh, not as, <laughs> as high or as rich uh, in mental or slash spiritual um, mm-hmm. content? Did that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it doesn't. I, I'd agree with you. And, uh, you know, I'd love to do because um, there, there's there's something I would love to get into a little bit, um, if, if this is okay with you. And, and, and Jeff, um, you had talked about, you know, cause being experiencers as well and then doing um, then doing the shrooms and then me doing the ayahuasca, um, that, that, you know, we, we have, like, a different perspective and then doing ayahuasca or um, shrooms, it, we can kind of do like a comparison in terms of the experiences. Um, would you guys want to talk about that for a minute? Well, sure. But first, before we do that, um, why don't you tell us what your experiences are? When you say you're an experiencer, what is it that you've experienced? Okay. <laughs> you can just give us a taste of it. I, you know, you don't need to run through everything if you don't want. 
So I won't, I won't run through everything. Um, I think that the first thing is, so I've had ET experiences, so, so there, there's that. Um, I've seen multiple ETs throughout my life. They changed as I, I got older. Um, saw the grays when I was younger and saw um, what I would call um, much more highly evolved beings um, when I was older. Um, what did they look but, like, the highly evolved beings? You know, they they I they were not um, easy for me to see. They were very very tall, um, huge actually, uh, not not wide, but very very tall. And they seemed to have uh, these blue cloaks on. Um, and Jeff, is this resonating for you? <laughs> Quiet down, co-host. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Let the lady continue. Go on. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, it sounds because sometimes it's like it sounds even silly, which is just dumb ego, right, coming out of my mouth. But they also seem to have like this this like mesh fabric around their faces, and um, and, and there's there's two. And you know, when I say these beings were highly evolved, um, because of it, this is when I first saw them. I was in my early twenties, and I had ongoing contact with them. And the last time I had an experience with them was probably when I was about 34 years old. I'm 38. So it was probably around um, that time frame. And it was a progression of training, a progression of knowledge, and a progression of um, what I would call, say, teaching is not the word. It was almost like uh, you're learning to, to take something over. Um, that they were doing, and um, that's that's what those taller beings look like. Um, but I would have to say, so going back, though, when I was younger, the grays were not the grays in what I would call the typical sense. Now that I've come to understand that there's like a hundred different variations of grays, these guys were very iridescent looking, um, almost golden in color as they were moving, um, but when they came into more of uh, your, your physical, like, like touching you, um, they were, they were, were much lighter, uh, you know, kind of like a, a light gray almost. Um, so, so, you know, again, not like the standard grays that I think you know, people talk about. These guys were different. Uh, uh, did did the, the, the enlightened beings, did they tell you what they were? Did you ever ask? No, no. I mean, um, no, I didn't. Um, no, I haven't asked. And people ask me that. I don't know where they came from. Um, I never asked that. Um, they have, When I say that they're very evolved, it was what they showed me and what I have had access to over these last 15 years that, that you know, leads me to believe and, and that I know deep in my heart as I just kind of like look into this with my soul and that they are very evolved beings. Now, were you ever afraid or was this all hunky-dory for you all the way through? Um, well, so if I can go back a little bit too, when I I remember being in my mother's stomach, I remember being there, and I remember even before I came, and I always had this conscious memory. And thank God, you know, having older brothers because I would say I remember being in my mom's stomach. I you know apparently I had to say this a lot when I was a kid. I don't remember that, but I do remember being in there. So I remember having like what I will call now like this consciousness, and my very first thought when I was in my mother's stomach because I could hear all this chaos going on outside and I thought, oh, man, I'm born here? Like, this is it? Like, oh, this place is loud. Like, 
I literally remember the sense of, oh, God, this place is loud. <laughs> and um, even at six months old, I remember... Um, is this a memory memory or hypnotically retrieved memory? No, no, this is... I remember this. I never lost the consciousness. I never lost it. Um, and I didn't know that that was weird, you know, or unusual until I got older. And I'm like, oh, so not everybody remembers this stuff. I just didn't lose that, that consciousness. Um and so the first time I saw the Greys, um, what I would call the Greys or a ship, my sister was in the room with me, and she's eight years my senior, and, you know, we saw the ship, and she said, oh, Susie, come come look at this. And it's like, you know, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And as I looked at it, there was something that was like literally what I call an immediate trigger. I wasn't scared. It was, there they are. It was just, an, it was immediate acceptance. And there was something that I would call um, more deep, familiar, that just kicked right in at that moment. Um, and it doesn't mean I wasn't scared, you know, going to bed when I was like six, seven, eight. But there was something that I, I um, that kicked in for me at this real deep level. There was a connection and an awareness, and that was right from the get-go. Um, and also... I remember them connecting with me, and they, you know, didn't hurt me. If anything, um, one of the beings, and the very first what I would call physical contact that I, I consciously remember, is um, it said to me, and it looked directly at me in my eyes and um, said, you know, telepathically, um, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. But it took my hand and it touched me very, very lightly, and then the minute it did that, I became incredibly warm, soothing, love, happiness, whatever you want to call it, just completely put me at ease. And um, and what they were doing, too, at that moment, they were, I didn't have, like, what I would call all these, you know, experiments of taking um, eggs or, you know, I, I don't remember, you know, being, like, forced down type of thing. Um, they were checking the food that was in my house. They were... They were literally, like, inspecting water. They were inspecting food. They were inspecting materials in the house. And, you know, I remember as I got older, um, like 19, 20, when I really started to talk about some of my experiences and other people were talking about, you know, the things that they had done to them. I'm going, well, these guys are checking out my cabinet, looking at my food. Like, do I say this or this is going to sound ridiculous? But, th- but that's one of the things that they were doing at the time, among other things. But, but that was one of them. And... Uh, I'm at a loss here because I was. <laughs> it's like everything that we're talking about. I keep expecting. Okay, well that will resolve that, and now we can get back to something. You know, get back to the mushrooms thing. But all of this is so freaking fascinating and 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 resonating. And I'm I'm hearing this. And I'm like, wow, this is what's happened to Jeff. There's a piece that's happened to me. Uh, it's just crazy. Um, so we will get back to the 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 shroom and ayahuasca thing. But uh, Jeff, if if you want to jump in with anything. I don't want to hog up all the time. No, 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 no. Go ahead, go ahead. All right. Well, now we might as well just jump to the shroom thing because <laughs> I feel like um, I don't know. This is all. It, it, it's all just crazy to me. It, 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 it's crazy in that it's so similar, and yet you don't have this fear. And I've always thought that this fear was an inherent part of the abduction scenario. Um, oh. And you could even argue with just when you touch something that's higher than you, uh, just sort of some survival instinct kicks in, you know, whatever that is, 
but you don't seem to have that. But then you also seem to have what? Almost a, a kinship, right? From the very yeah, beginning with that, these beings. Yes, yes, there's no doubt about that. I mean, that is, um, you know, that, that, that was from day one. Like I said, the minute that ship came, my sister was freaking out. My sister was like, oh, my God, Susie, look, look, look at it. And it was just something that clicked in right at that moment that was just, it was this instant, I, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to say the words because this is the first time I think I've ever really talked about it because this is the first time I've really been asked about it. Um, it was just this deeper, deeper than my family, and, and I had a great family growing up, very loving, very wonderful, but there was a, just a deeper connection, and I knew it, and I, I just knew it right from the get-go. Again, it doesn't mean I didn't experience, you know, like needing to sit with a light on because it's like, when are they going to come back? Are you going to pop up, you know, right next to my bed? Or are you going to, you know, take me when I'm playing out in the sand, which is, you know, something that happened when I was younger too. Like, when, you know, when is this going to come? I think the fear that I had was not being able to, what I call, control that aspect of it. But I always knew when they were coming. Like, I always had that feeling probably 24 hours before the experience or at least, a, like, maybe 12 hours before it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, did, I didn't have, I didn't really have that fear. I remember an uncomfortable feeling as, like the cells, uh, it felt like the cells of my body were all vibrating at the same time, and that felt really weird. But I wouldn't say that I was you know, frightened by it. When the uh, the the tall, intelligent people, <laughs> or or enlightened people, or whatever you want to call them, um, yeah. when they came to you, did they tell you, or did anyone explain to you why you had transitioned from grays to them? No, no. Um, you know, again, no idea. I just uh, no idea. They. Um, they appeared. They appeared at the, the end of um, my my bed. I was actually sleeping at um, uh, a boyfriend's house at the time. They appeared at the the end of the bed, and the next thing I know, I'm I'm having an experience with them. Um, so, yeah. I, I, again, I don't know where they came from. I wasn't able to ask them questions. Um, that was the first time I saw them when I was about 21 years old. Hmm. All right. Um, well, let's. Try to go back, I guess, to the uh, the shroom slash ayahuasca. What is it that you found in your experience um, with ayahuasca, either a feeling or a sight or or how, whatever in whatever respect uh, that was similar to um, your abduction scenarios, if you even want to call them abductions? Yeah, I would definitely would not call mine abductions. That's for sure. Um, what was similar? Maybe the the, the what I call it the, the vision aspect of it. Um, seeing things and knowing that you're almost in like a different dimension, that might have been similar. Um, but I'd have to say that is probably it. Um, my my physical body was, you know, I could still really feel my physical body where it was, but I knew I was seeing something else um, at that same time. So I would say that's really about it. Was your, um, your consciousness, um, your your sense of self, was it at the forefront the way it is now, or was it receded? Because for me, it was receded in the background somewhere. Uh, that's a great question. Um, probably a little bit of both, though. Um, I, there were times that I found that if I did certain things with my physical body, uh, whether it be touching the ground and holding onto the ground and remembering there's dirt 
under, you know, where my hands were and that my uh, back was against the chair. So, you know, like certain things would kind of, um, and I did these intentionally to try to kind of ground myself so I wouldn't get so taken away. Um, so the aspect of literally like the, you know, ayahuasca kind of pulling you away. And there was, there was what I would call like, you know, there were some um, malevolent, malevolent um, entities that were there. You know, there's benevolent ones, but there were some of these icky ones that were there too. And that was really different. I didn't have that in any of my EP experiences. I didn't have that. That, that what I would call that type of fear. Um, you know, there was a purpose for the the you know, the ET experiences, and I, I didn't feel like some of the stuff that I was experiencing in my ayahuasca had this great purpose. I felt like you know, uh, it had opened up like this this other world, psychic world, um, spirit world, and there were some entities that were were not pleasant. Um, but I hope, I'm sorry, I went on a little bit too long no, there. But well, do you do you think but, that the these what you're calling the alien beings? Do you think that they are aware of these other realms? Uh, um, I would imagine so. I would imagine so. I mean, I mean at what point I, are you no longer an alien? You know, we we keep talking about these things like they're ETs from another world, and wherever they're born, I mean, it it just seems like you know, eventually we're going to be, if we survive, <laughs> are going to yeah. be a non-local species. And then where will we be from? If, if you can enter other dimensions, if you can planet hop at will, uh, where are you from? Yeah. What's your locality? And then we also talk about them in terms of, well, geez, maybe these have been here since forever, since the beginning of us at least. Well, then are they aliens? I mean, <laughs> how alien are aliens, Sue? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. How, how alien are you? <laughs> um, but you know what? This is, this is the other part. This took me a long time to really wrestle with because I did not, you know, I don't know if you guys felt the same way. I, I don't know each of your stories, but I did not want to accept this. I mean, I, I really, really didn't, especially with even the, the benevolent beings and the stuff that they showed me and the amazing stuff that they've showed me that I was able to share with um in session, when I say in session, there was no hypnosis. I was with a team of scientists um, because I got information about the nature and structure of the universe. And I'm like walking around with this stuff going, who the hell am I to like get this stuff? What the hell is this? Um, so, you know, there's a part of yourself that doesn't want to accept it because if you accept it and you open up to it, then you kind of have to change your life around accordingly um, because you can't just walk around in like these dual identities, or at least I couldn't. Um, but there's, there's different beings. They're not all the same. And for some reason, some of us see certain ones, and some of us see none, and some of us see a couple of different ones. Why? I haven't really figured that one out yet. But, you know, I think there's different reasons that they come here. There's certain things that they need and vice versa. Maybe they're helping us in ways that, that we have yet to even, you know, imagine yet. So, mm -hmm. no, no, you know, it, it's kind of like... Yeah, as people say, you know, as it is as it is above, so it is below. I mean, you know, look at the diversity that's on our planet. What um, what was so amazing that you got to work with a team of scientists? What's what's that information? Is that um, something we're allowed to know? Oh, <laughs> uh, maybe um, I don't know. Um, what do you know about the universe, Susan? <laughs> Uh, what do I go with it? Well, Susan got downloaded with information. She woke up one morning and she was like, what the hell is this? Uh, you know, for God's sakes, I was like a cheerleader in high school. What are you giving me a calculation for? I about the, you know, stitch and structure of the universe. I couldn't even pass physics. So, <laughs> I mean, I laugh at this stuff, but really, you know, that's like the ego kind of laughing, but then there's this deeper part going, 
come on now, what, you know, what is this? But uh, these, these beings have shown me over the last 15 years the condensing of the life energy of the universe that we're in and the development of a new universe. And um, it's taken me a long time to actually get those words out of my mouth without sounding funny about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is what they've shown me. There's calculation formulas that were given. They've shown me the creation um, and then they came back um, when I was in my early 30s and then showed me the development of this new universe and um, that I shared with a Harvard-Smithsonian um, astrophysicist and uh, a, a group of other scientists that were there. And um, afterwards, probably about uh, nine months after this, um, the astrophysicist, by the way, the astrophysicist was firm. You're seeing a new galaxy. That's what it is. And I'm going, I would be happy to see a new galaxy because this whole new, new universe thing, I just want to, like, bolt out of this office right now because I don't think I can handle this. Um, but nine months afterwards, he came back and he said, it looks like what you showed us, what you told us, is actually how we're now understanding the way that the, the world, the, not the world, the way that the universe works. And that there, you know, it, it, it is possible that there is more than one universe, that there is multiverses. And um, I don't think he had really, you know, gone there before um, on that. But now, thank heavens, uh, with people like, um, I'm going to destroy his name, Michio Kaku, um, who talks about this. Um, you know, thank God for, for, you know, people like that that are able to, to you know, put this one experience that I've had over 15 years from these experiences and actually put them scientifically um, uh, into a framework. So, Huh. Well, so, any, any context for why you would have learned that? I don't know. Uh, see, again, that's, that's a question that I don't want to ask myself yet. Um, I, I don't know. Um, but maybe I do know. Uh, in some ways I don't, but in some ways I do. Um, when I say that... Um, there was a part of me, you know, that had to just accept it is what it is. I don't know why yet, but it is what it is. Because I've had a very hard time accepting, like, why, why, why was I given it? And I, call it, I called it a burden for a very long time. Why was I given this burden? Why can't I just, like, live my life like everybody else? Let me do that. Let me do that. Let me do that. But it wasn't what it was. So I just had to come, and it took me a long time to just come to this acceptance that, this is what I was shown. Somehow I'm a part of this. I don't have all the answers, and maybe someday I will. But every day I'm going to work to try to find out, you know, these pieces along the way. I do think and believe that we have a shift literally going on. It's not just on Earth. I think we have a shift going on in the whole universe. And I think that, um, and this is based on some of the stuff that, that I've seen, I think that the whole universe is going through this shift in that, in order for a new universe to form, the, the condensing of the life energy of this universe needs to take place. I mean, that literally might be how, you know, the cosmos form or how they continue and how they evolve. Um, but there's something that's happening on a universal scale. It's not just on Earth that we're going through this. You know, some people talk at the ascension. It's not just on Earth. I really believe we're talking, um, oh, the whole universe is going through some changes right now. Hey, Peritopia, sorry about this quick time out, but I then asked her a question that led to a very long private conversation that had to do with Jeff's cloaked person that uh, had come to him a number of times. 
Um, and as you know, if you've listened to the show before, we've tried to talk about him before, and Jeff has received punishment for that. So I'm taking that out of the show, and um, we're picking it up right after uh, Jeff got done explaining some stuff about him to Susan. Time back in. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that's, sure. you know, it's, it's, it's nice because, uh, I mean, nice in some way, right? Uh, you, you know, I mean, to say nice is a really simplistic term, but, you know, it's like, because here I am, like, you know, getting broadcast for the first time ever. You know, I, I don't know how many people can reach, but the point is that I don't know, you know, Jeremy, a ton about your experiences. I don't know about your experiences as well. So it's nice to be able to, to you know, kind of connect with them and, and know where you guys are, you know, coming mm-hmm. from. Essentially. Do you mind if I ask you a question? Sure. Because I'm curious. Do you think that, like, like what is happening with you in these experiences, like how you um, – emotionally behave, um, and there's a reason why I'm saying this, so I'll, I'll ask the question, but I'm going to um, say something at the end of it. But like how you emotionally behave in these experiences is similar to how you would behave if you met, like, somebody on the street and they did something that you didn't like. Like, you, would your emotional reaction be the same? Now, just hold on to that for a second, because in, in my experience, um, there, there was a time that I was put on a table, I was restrained, but I knew I knew that what they were doing, I don't know how I knew this again, but I knew what they were doing, that this was for something really important. So I, I let it happen. I didn't like it, but I was observing it, watching it, and they were, there was like this hybrid toddler that was screaming, it was really angry, and it was crying, and they were... I was having a complete physical reaction in my body to the emotions that this thing was feeling. And, um, you know, I remember looking over at it and being like, ugh, you know, this is not like human. Like, what is this thing? And, um, but I knew that they were testing to see if I, I had empathy, that I could actually feel what this thing was feeling. And then, mm-hmm. you know, look at the irony. Like, even when I did started with the emotional intelligence work, I had no clue. I didn't, you know, tie any of this shit together. It was like, Oh, I'm doing AI work. Oh, boy, hey, when I was five, they were testing my empathy. I mean, you know, I didn't really get it at the time, but, but do you think that, like, for you, that, like, how you behave in, like, your day-to-day life is similar to how you're behaving, not behaving, but how you're interacting in these experiences, and that's, like, you know, the learning, I guess, in some way? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, think, I think at a certain point, I could I could see correlations in that that as a child I was um, a fearful kid. I was fearful of everything. I was afraid of other kids. I was afraid of um, you know routine trips to the doctor, that sort of thing. But I think a lot of kids are that. Um, I, I think um, that as I've turned older, that fear has basically turned to just getting angry because I'm tired of being afraid. I mean, that's essentially where I'm at with all of this is that I'm sick and tired of being afraid of it. And, uh, but yet I still am to a certain degree. I don't, I don't know that I can say I react the same way. I, I don't, I think, uh, I think if anything, I've always said that I've learned volumes about my, myself in this, but very little about what they are, what they want, where they're from. Uh, so I, I think that they have definitely taught me what I fear. Uh, yeah. uh, that's for sure. And in, and that has translated for me in that, uh, in the 
the the, the literal world, I don't. Um, I, there's not a whole lot I'm afraid of. Um, you know, people on the street. Uh, you know, going to uh, a rock concert in a bad part of town in New Jersey or something like that. That doesn't bother me in the least. You know, there's no place on this earth I'd really be afraid to walk. Uh, mm-hmm. so it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of translated to me for that. Sure. There is one thing I wanted to ask you, Susan, about, I mean, again, going back to the, uh, the EQ thing, have you seen that a lack of emotional intelligence is relatively new for us or has this always been around and always been the same or, or is it more chronic these days than, 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 you know, 20 years ago? Uh- um, geez, here we go again. It's like what you've got going on right now, you've got so many factors going on. You've got technology. I mean, nobody had a handheld device 20 years ago. Everybody's got a handheld device. You can't even sit down and have a conversation with somebody between the age of like 18 and 22 years old that doesn't have a cell phone in their hand and that's texting. So what happens is there's this disjointed conversation that's taking place, and, and there's very little emotion that's being conveyed back and forth. Um, so th- there's there's this disconnection with technology um, that that's created you know one of the biggest spikes. You also have apathy, you know, meaning people are not not feeling things because of the the sensitization of what they're seeing on TV and what they are exposed to, you know, with like. Uh, video games and all the stuff that's on television now. I mean, the stuff is is flying in. You know, we know that actually does. You know, you see something like that over and over and over, and um, your sensitivity is compromised. It's lost, and your emotions form from your senses. So if your senses are dulled, then your ability to actually you know connect with somebody emotionally and to care and to you know for lack of better words to really give a crap about what's happening and what's going on in the world, um, it, it all becomes compromised. And then you add in other factors such as unnatural you know processed foods, uh, GMO uh, foods. Um, you add in. Uh, chemicals that are in the air, and then you add in um, other aspects of, you know, chemicals that are in your house. I mean, all of these things, they have an effect on our senses, Um, you know, our vision, our hearing, um, the sense of touch, you know, all of that has has an effect. So, um, like a child, for example, you know, one of the most important things is when a child is born is for that child to be held, to be loved, to be nurtured, and to uh, be able to explore their senses. Um, it's the emotional part of a child that develops before the intellectual part. So, you know, what has happened over the last 20 years is, is even though we're talking about emotional intelligence more, it seems like... Yes, there's training that's occurring. We know how important it is for kids to be able to manage their emotions and to you know, feel a wide variety of different emotions. You know that's really important. Uh, but we've, we've got people that are coming, you know, into the world now. Um, you know, five, seven, ten years, whatever. Are are they're they're apathetic? You know, seeing some the kids seeing the events of 9/11 as well. So, in some ways, you know, for for those people, I guess who are lucky that either read or are exposed to um, an environment where there's love, it's nurturing, supportive, and, and emotions are important. Then hey, there's things that are moving and going forward. But you know, what is happening with most people because of technology and what else is out there is that our emotions are becoming compromised. So that's a long answer. I apologize. Yeah, no. 
it's true. And, and, and I, you know, for, for what I believe, I really do think that it is one of the reasons that one of the species, it could be many, of ETs are coming to our, our you know, environment because if we lose our ability to really care about one another, I mean, there goes the planet at that point. You know, we've seen what atomic bombs can do, but, you know, we're literally talking about maybe our species not surviving. If we continue to become so, you know, technology-based, without having the consciousness or the heart that goes along with it. So. All right. Well, we had, a, we had Maggie Jackson on the show a while back, and, and she's written a lot about how technology is basically uh, driving man towards what she referred to as a dark age where, you know, essentially everybody's plugging into their, you know, their, their machines, and there's always a machine between you and your doctor, you and your friends, you and your coworkers, um, and she feels that that's eventually going to lead us to some sort of dark age with technology. I mean, is that how do you see us turning that around and getting out of that kind of, uh, you know, headlong into something we probably don't want to do? I, I mean, I, <laughs> being a hard rock fan, I look back to, you know, uh, 21, 21, 12 from Rush, where the guy says, I plug into my temple paper and then I go to work and plug into my temple vision. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's just like prophetic in, in, the, in that sense that we're, we're all plugged into the net. We're all communicating more, but what the hell are we yeah. really saying to each other? Uh, so how do you see yeah. us turning that around? I mean, what um, do we do? I think, you know, it's, it's, it's like anything. Technology is great, but it's got to be used in balance. Like, everything is in balance. Like, the, the yin and the yang of the universe, right? You know, we've got all this great stuff, but it needs to be used with, with wisdom, you know, and that emotional wisdom is really, really important. So how do we bring it back? Um, I have a child, so we don't let her watch um, TV for more than, like, 30 minutes a day. And some days, you know, she doesn't get to watch it at all. Being back with nature is really important um, with living beings, things that are living, things that, you know, living beings, your, your pets in your house, the pets that are, or, or rather animals that are outside, um, gardening. It might sound, you know, kind of silly, ridiculous, but anything that, that is, that has a life form inside of it and connecting with that and then connecting with other people. So, you know, community based, having people over your house, having you uh, go over to somebody's house, you know, family meetings, uh, or family get togethers, everybody puts cell phone down before they actually, you know, sit down with one another. So, you know, there's, there's simple ways to do it in terms of, you know, how you act in your own day-to-day life, me, you know, how I act in my own day-to-day life, um, and then, you know, how do we do it on a, on a vendor scale? But the problem with emotional intelligence, there's a problem with it, is that it has been typically given to businesses and corporations and universities as a business edge, as a business advantage, you know, meaning, well, if you're more emotionally intelligent, you can sell more, you know, which is, in, in my opinion, it's really um, it compromises my, my values when I go in there. I know what it is that I go in and, and do with the people that I work with, um, which is teaching them that it's okay to be human and that, you know, you shouldn't separate yourself out. Uh, like, there's your work hat and then, you know, here's who you are. Uh, that it shouldn't be the case. And I actually talk about the importance of that. So it actually starts, I believe, by being with other living things, by having that focused concentration um, by, by caring actually what somebody is saying, listening to it, and emotionally engaging yourself with them. Um, we don't do that enough. And, and what I would like to say is the beings that I've come into contact with that have, you know, contacted me, there has 
almost always, and I, I know not everybody else's experiences is like this, have, have been very caring, considerate. There's been compassion that has been extended, a, a lot of focus, a lot of concentration. Um, and, and that uh, energy is one of the things that I try to hold, you know, when I'm working with other people and then obviously, you know, interacting with my child as well. Um, so it's kind of remembering what it is, some of the things that they do that we as a society, I'm seeing that we're starting to lose sight of. I just want to hit on this one thing with you for the the comparison of, of the psilocybin mushroom with the, the ayahuasca. When I say to you, or I say to our audience, can you chime in on the same thing? When I say to you, there's a feeling that comes around the Christmas season. There's a feeling when it's New Year's. There's a feeling you have when it's Halloween. Do you know what I mean by that? There's kind of a, yeah. a, a that intangible thing that you just you feel like it's Halloween. You can you can feel that that fallness. You can feel you know the, the mischief in the air. I guess that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. For for me, when I had experiences or whenever I've had experiences with these beings, whatever they are. I revert to a feeling that seems like the feeling of being a child. Um, I don't know exactly what that means, um, whether it, it, it's not the kind of thing that I'm trying to convey that, you know, I immediately go into the fetal position and start rocking back and forth. That's not what I'm getting at. There's definitely a feeling that there was of being a child. And I know that when, um, you know, we, we tried the, the psilocybin mushroom, I very much got that same feeling. That was one of the similarities that I felt in that experience to this. There was that feeling of, I don't know if you'd call it absolute in its innocent wonderment, or I, I, don't, I don't know what it would be called. Um, just a sense of no expectation and everything being new. That sort of, there was definitely that sort of feeling, along with a little, just that ever so thinly sliced bit of fear uh, laid on top of it. So, I mean, did you, with the ayahuasca, did you have anything that felt like that, that you had just an overall arcing feeling of how it felt to be in that state? Yeah. um, Well, thanks for that explanation because it helps put it into context to be able to, I think, answer this. Um, My emotion, my emotion going into it, um, I I just had, not that focus is an emotion, but I I guess interest, um, I, I was slightly um, excited. I was anticipating what was happening in a positive way. So that was my emotion going into it. And I had no frame of reference, never done, never doing anything like this before. Also having what I would consider fairly positive or not necessarily overly negative uh, ET experiences or other kind of, you know, psychic experiences. Um, I didn't go into it, I think, in a fear-based state. So I think that that is important, like the emotion that I was feeling, you know, at that moment of going into it. Um, I was looking for truth was the utmost importance. So I was looking to see truth um, in terms of what it was, how this, how the entity comes in, how it attaches itself to DNA, and you know, how do you do healing around it? So again, really firm on on, on what it is I wanted. I did become frightened um, at one point in the experience where I felt like I was being taken away from my my goal, my mission, you know, which was why I was there, and I was starting to see what I would call these, you know, these dark entities that I'd never seen before, and 
that scared me. It frightened me because I felt like I don't want to go with you and I don't know what it is that I need to now do to get back. Um, so then I started, you know, calling out for help at that point and uh, calling out for help was, was, I felt like I was dying. I'm like, where are you taking me? This is black. This is dark. I don't like you. You look like you're tricking me. And, um, you know, I, I became frightened at that point, and that's when, you know, I then look over at probably my most frightening point, screaming out, you know, quietly in my head, but it, but it was loud in my head, um, saying, help. Uh, so that that was the feeling I had. And then there's the calmness that, that came afterwards. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but... Yeah, I was searching for truth, so my overall state going into it was you know, fairly calm, you know, maybe slightly excited, slightly interested in what was going to happen. Um, but, you know, I did experience that, that fear um, at that point of being taken away. Mm. Well, I mean, I think that that sort of coincides with how I felt with the, the mushroom, which was I became, and I have to say that I am a guy who had, I had a very hard time doing this at all. I mean, number one, I'm I'm allergic to everything practically, so that was my number one fear. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna eat a mushroom and swell up like you know, a balloon. Um, that that didn't absolutely didn't happen. But uh, uh, one of the things that I have a problem with is physical sensation, the, the 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 biological physical sensation of feeling detached, which I don't like that, um, and, and I very much felt. Uh, um, detached from my limbs in particular, my arms didn't feel like I would look at my hand and say, these are not my hands, but I'm moving them. They must be my hands. And, you know, that, that sort of thing, they just didn't feel connected. Like I, you know, feel in a normal state. But when you say something taking you away and not feeling like you may not be able to get back, it's definitely familiar in that sense. And that when I would shut my eyes and see things, it, it becomes the totality for me of where I am. Uh, I forget yeah. where I am. Uh, and then basically, in, in my experience, walking with a, a, a girl uh, through a forest and talking to her, and then my leg fell asleep because <laughs> I was sitting on the ground in a, in a, a bad position, I guess. And when my leg fell asleep, uh, it, it, I went, whoa, I'm, in, I'm not here. I'm there. And that scared me. Uh, in, in the sense that I felt like, God, if, if my leg hadn't fallen asleep and snapped me out of this, <laughs> would I have been able to get out of that? Um, you know, I mean, there was definitely that feeling. But for you in in the ayahuasca thing, was there anything else that was similar about an alien experience versus that? I mean, in no. what you visually saw, what you what you heard, like changing the atmosphere at all? I mean, did you get that kind of... A feeling of, of a proximity or anything like that? No, what I felt, you know, what I felt was literally that I was able to, I was stepping into a different dimension. That's how it felt. It felt that I was stepping into a different dimension at that point. And it also felt that I also felt like I was more open, not that I was, but that there was an opening that, that had been lifted and there were certain things that were going to come in that were not necessarily um, there for me. Uh, that, that's, that's one of the things that I felt were the ET experiences. There's, a, there's something real specific about it. There's something very personal, <laughs> personal you know, from like an infinite soul standpoint mm-hmm. uh, that, that 
I feel, um, you know, but the, again, probably one of the only similarities was the sense of, of stepping into, like, a different dimension. But I felt like, okay, I'm now seeing things. I don't know if they're they're for me. You know, I don't know what these things are. Um, I think some were. It was almost like kind of weeding through what you want, what you wanted to experience, and, and what you didn't want to experience. And, and you know, almost having like a strength to not get so sucked in um, to the scary stuff and not let it uh, consume you. At least that that for me, you know, I was like, oh my god, how, how am I? How am I getting so sucked into this? You know, that was so different than than my ET experiences. You know, very very different than that. Um, and, and there was a strength in these in these entities that that were there that you know had had scared me quite a bit. But again, probably one of the only similarities was feeling like you're stepping into a different dimension. Um, I, I felt though that you know as the the Dalai Lama was sitting next to me. I felt that that was a vision I was seeing. I don't know if I could have gone over and touched him and that he would have physically been there. I know that he was viscerally there, um, but that would be different because in the ET experiences, I know that I could touch them and, and, and there was a physical sensation. What is a vision with your eyes open with ayahuasca? What What is the... What's the aberrations that you tend to see with your eyes open when you are sitting on the ground? And I'm assuming there are other people around, uh, yes. you know, whether it's a campfire or whatever. What is the, you know, the, the, the biological feedback that you're getting out of your eyes, your ears? Do you feel a heightened sense of vision and hearing and all of that sort? Yeah, not hear, um, not necessarily hearing. For me, it was it was vision. Um, the, the you know obviously many different colors, so it was definitely there was a lot more visions that that were happening and occurring. And um, it, the the irony was sometimes when my eyes were open, I was seeing the same thing as when my eyes were closed. Hmm. Um, it was almost like the, it was almost like a, the, the scene would change. Even though my eyes were open, at one point I could look and see the, the actual room, and at another point, even though my eyes were open, I, I'm now seeing these different images and these different visions. So I would take it, judging from your the way you're you're talking here about this whole experience, you would say that what you experienced in that state is a freestanding reality. Yes, yeah, that's a great way to great way to put it. That's what it felt like. That's that's very much what it felt like. It's like a freestanding reality. That's very much what it felt like. I haven't yet to you know put it in words. But I'm going to use that one, and I'll credit you for it. <laughs> do you, great. Um, do you um, do you think then that again? This is a difficult one to frame out. Um, do you think that when you have an alien experience? That, I mean, that too, of course, I mean, I consider personally to be a freestanding reality. I know that there are, and to give you my own thing, it's like I think these things are not so far removed from where we are right now. I think there are Mm -hmm. beings around us immediately right now that we just simply can't see. And the part that interested me about psychedelics was essentially, you know, it's it's uh, an altered perception, an altered state of consciousness, which... I think plays heavily into the entire alien experience. Do you think then that the way a psychedelic drug can basically alter consciousness to make you see things that might ordinarily be there? Do you think that the same thing tends to exist in alien experiences where for some reason, whether it be the release of 
DMT from the pineal gland at a certain time of the night or day um, that enables you to interact with these people? I mean, I know the question out from that is how does something like that manifest at that point to where your sister can see it as my wife has seen it, as people I've known have seen it with me. Do you think it's all about the tuning of consciousness, the tuning of the brain, much like a radio skipping stations around, you can tap different places. Uh, um, How's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like saying, yeah, man, hold on a second. <laughs> um, <laughs> gosh, you know, cause I don't know. If, here's this. How, how could I say? I don't know. I know. I don't know. Cause, cause the experiences, the ET experiences, not every one of them has ever been exactly the same. You know, you've got different beings. There's different um, the color of the sky is different. The feeling that you have, I mean, I specifically remember being in a ship in one of my experiences. And another experience, even though they were at the foot of my bed, and the next thing I know, I'm literally zipping through the cosmos and, and laughing, by the way, because I'm like, oh, my God, this is so fun. This is amazing. Wow. You know, but there was a level of, like, seriousness, you know, at the end, you know, of what they were showing me and explaining. Um, you know, that was different. I couldn't even, you know, say that the first experience was, you know, exactly the same as that other experience. Um, so perhaps, you know, maybe it's like this. It's like, you know, whoever we are, right, as you know, ind- individuals and the vibration that we hold, whatever entity, whether it be ET, spirit, um, or, or what have you, or even human being, right, starts to move into our space, and then you've got you know, a reaction or an action that occurs as a result, you know, maybe you know, that's the tuning that we're talking about. There's some, some uh, call it third entity, right? So there's you and something else, and then whatever that something else is is, is the culmination of the two of you interacting. You know, that's why I think for me um, it's different for every experience because not every one of these beings operates on the same vibration, whether they be in a, you know, in a psychic experience um, or the ET experience or in the ayahuasca experience. So, I don't, again, I don't know if that answers it, but uh, I think yeah. there's, there's almost like our own individual tuning that we have um, as it relates to whatever we're interacting with. Do you or have you over the years with your own experiences, have you noticed at all if the frequency or single event experiences seem to have any bearing on your focus at the moment. In other words, when you focus on or talk about these experiences in any great depth, do you feel in any way that that can make something manifest for you in the way of an experience like this? Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, yes, thank you. And especially when I was younger and not having what I would call the, um, the ability to now manage the energy that's moving and flowing inside of my body. Um, so, so yes, like, you know, calling in, I wouldn't say calling in that energy, but really focusing in on it, um, it seems to then, you know, whether it be bring on an experience or bring in that connection. Absolutely. Um, where I'm at now, I think this is kind of important, where I'm at now is I feel like, I'm not going to have any experiences like the, the what I call the traditional ET experiences. It's kind of funny, right? Traditional ET experiences <laughs> for <laughs> it is right um, for for a little while. Meaning that 
there's information that's in me subconsciously that's slowly coming out, and I feel it. Like, I feel very connected in right now, um, and I, I feel like I'm not going to have, like, I don't need to have the ship and I don't need to have the being walk in. I feel like I'm on my own for a while, even though I'm still very connected and I don't see them in that, that, that physical form. Um, it, you know, for, the, for the, a little while I haven't, and there's sometimes um, information that's conveyed psychically now. And so it's almost like it's less energy for them to get here, and then what it's also doing is prompting me to grow and develop my own uh, vibration to kind of meet them as opposed to them constantly needing to come into my space. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, um, yeah. So and that has that's also felt very empowering um, to not feel like oh they're coming and and you have no control there. over it, right? Right. Yeah, I feel I like mean, there's there's a co-process that's happening now. It's really it, it's now collaborative, and they're they're kind of waiting off to the side until I continue to to grow and develop. And at some point. Um, you know, if I'm off track or on track or if I need more information, you know, then at that point, you know, it's up to me to, to initiate the contact. I noticed that you refer to this whole thing as ET. And I think, you know, anybody who's listening to this show knows how I think about the whole extraterrestrial hypothesis of what this is. I mean, when you say that, do you necessarily mean, you know, little green men from Planet X or are we talking about something that's just it, it, not from here? Yeah, again, I don't know the different beings that I've experienced. I don't know where they've come from. Um, I, I, they're not little green men. Right, <laughs> um, right. Yeah, you know, they, they've, they've been different beings. Um, it, the reason why I say extraterrestrial is because of seeing a UFO, um, having them literally come through a wall, you know, for their energy first, and then boom, you know, their, their physical matter at that point, um, standing at the, the edge of my bed. Uh, so, therefore, you know, I, I say extraterrestrial because um, um, because of that. You know, I mean, we're not, not, we're not necessarily talking about nuts and bolts, um, you know, when we say we see a flying saucer or we see some sort of craft, we're not necessarily talking about, you know, a thing that's a ribbon-studded aircraft. Um, Star Trek you know. is what we're getting. Yeah, I mean that's not necessarily. Is that where you come from with this stuff at all? I mean, or do you see the the disc as more of a symbolic kind of an avatar that's that's just used to more or less make sense for us? Oh, um, gosh, you know what? I I have to say, I never really thought about that. I just I kind of made an assumption that you know when I was five and I saw the ship and it was you know just oscillating and, and it was like quasi quasi uh, physical matter that that okay that's how they get from point A to point B um mm-hmm. I was just sorry I just had kind of like another memory of, of an experience and that, that just popped in um I I have to say I I do think that um with some of the beings that's that's how they they come in um mm-hmm. they come in through technologies that that are advanced mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, believe me, I'm, I'm not so dissuaded from that because I, too, have been in a, in a place that clearly wasn't where I was supposed to be at the time. And it certainly seemed like it would be on something advanced. It looked like a made thing. It didn't look like a, it seemed technological. It didn't necessarily seem like it was visionary or anything like that. It seemed every bit as real as the desk I'm sitting at right now. 
but I, you know, I go back to, and I'm not, I mean, everybody can get prepared to listen to this show to take a drink because I'm going to say it again. Terrence McKenna, uh, who, you know, did, did a lot of work with psychedelics uh, most of his life. I mean, more often than not, you know, he described a sighting that he had one time that was essentially, you know, the Adamski craft, the Adamski disc. And he mentioned that, um, you know, this this thing went from being a bit of cloud that he saw in the Amazon to a rivet studded aircraft like th- that looked exactly like the Adamski disc, disc, which he knew to be a hoax. <laughs> so he says, what do you say about a phenomenon that actually cast doubt upon itself? Um, you know, was it more true to itself as the Adamski disc or uh, some cloud? And and his one of his last lectures that I listened to, um, you know, he says we're we're dealing with a culture in a symbiotic relationship that is posing as an extraterrestrial culture, so as not to alarm us. Right. <laughs> I think that's freaking brilliant. You know, it, it, it leaves it completely wide open. I was just curious how you. You know how you viewed this thing as as nuts and bolts or not? I see it as both personally. Uh, it doesn't have to. I mean, people always ask me, you know, uh, who who aren't familiar with the subject. The minute they find I'm into this, um, well, are they real? And you know, I usually piss them off by saying that depends on what you mean by real. They don't have to be that that nuts and bolts thing, but they can be when they want to be. Well, at any rate, Jeremy, you you got more, I'm sure. Um, yeah. Am I allowed to talk about the Harvard thing that we were at? Yeah, I don't. Uh, hey, personally, I, I say yes because as long as, as I, I don't think that we quote you know names, I think that we're good if we can just do maybe general, um, okay, you know, roles that people have that would be better than names. Yeah, well, okay. So I just want to say that I I met you at um, a Harvard gathering that I've spoken about very generally, maybe on this show, but definitely on our message board. Um, prior to going there. And then of course I didn't really say anything about it afterwards because people wanted to keep their anonymity. But, um, but I met you there and you, part of your presentation, um, you talked about, I think EEG, uh, readouts of, um, spiritual guru types versus experiencers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, the, the, let's say there was a study done. It was a while ago. I think this was when Pierre was in his, in, in, you know, flying high, um, when Dr. Mack was there. And there was a research study that was done. It wasn't done there, but, you know, there was information that got then, you know, transferred to some of the, um, psychologists that were working with John. And what they found was they had, uh, done, um, studies on people that had had experiences and then uh, done studies on um, yogis that had trained, you know, in deep meditation for something like, you know, 30 to 35 years. And what they found is that the, the brain waves were the same for the experiencers as it was for these great yogis. So basically, experiencers can pop into these really deep meditative states without having any formal uh, meditation training. So, you know, I think what, you know, what do you what can you possibly, you know, extrapolate from that is that experiencers, you know, have this vibration either that they, I don't know if they're born with it uh, or, you know, if it develops later because of you know, these extraordinary experiences that, that affects them, you know, vibrationally. And as a result, they're able to go into these, these, these deeper states. And very quickly, might I add, um, they're able to pop into these states very quickly. Well, you've just, and, uh, in in the short amount of time we've spent together, uh, tied Jeff and my, uh, 
stuff together nicely. <laughs> you've really you've really tied the ends together for us. Because uh, we, you know, we talk about pretty much everything that that we've talked about tonight. Jeff has come out of Jeff and, and my mouth, and about us. And I sometimes think people must think we're embellishing or cuckoo for cocoa puffs or something. But there it is, as Jeff would say, there it is. Um, there it is. Many of us don't want to accept it, but you know, in order to to actually be sane, you know, walking in your truth is being sane. And right. If it sounds crazy, other people, well, sorry, you know, we all don't have the same experiences in life. With that study, do they parse out um, different types of experiencers, or or do they just say, okay, experiencer, guru? Well, my guess is because the study was done like 10, 15 years ago that they didn't have the knowledge at the time to know how to splice people up. So they probably just grouped everybody in that had some type of ET contact or thought that they had some type of extraterrestrial experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you have um, any knowledge about what, what the Dalai Lama feels about this whole experience or issue? All right. Are we on record or no? That would be nice. <laughs> are you saying no? All right. Well, um, from 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 what um, the Dalai Lama had a conversation with John Mack. Okay, so this is third party information, but I've now heard this well over uh, eighteen years <laughs> um, that he had a conversation with uh, John. They met with one another, and he whispered to John, and he said, "You know, um, some of our most advanced monks can communicate with beings from other places." You know, not not from Earth, and uh, you know that was something that he he told um, whispered to John. The so that's that's a point to kind of you know keep off to to the side. Um, the other thing that's important is there, and I wrote about this in, in the story that I did for um, semi anonymously for uh, Australia.to, um, that the Karmapa. Um, there's a gentleman by the name of Stefan Alex, who's a French. Um, he was a war journalist, and he went to go interview the Karmapa. Karmapa um, actually escaped when he was like 15 years old from uh, Chinese-occupied Tibet, and you know, Chinese Chinese government was really upset that the Karmapa escaped because, you know, first of all, they thought they had him. Um, but there's a great story that that went along with it about this whole escape. So, uh, Stefan, being a French journalist, went to go interview the Karmapa, and the Karmapa looked at him, wasn't going to give him the interview about his escape. He said. You need to go write a story about people who have seen UFOs and had ET experiences. And this guy's a French journalist, you know, like he did stuff in Afghanistan. And he's like, like, what the? F-? He actually said this. Excuse me. Can I swear on this, by the way? Yeah, why not? <laughs> he said, "What the fuck is this?" What's the, you know, I don't think he said it to the Karmap, although he might have, knowing who he is. So this guy walks out of there and he's going, "What, what the fuck is this? What the fuck is this? How, why did he just give me this information?" <laughs> Nothing about nothing about extraterrestrials. Nothing about ETs. So what did he do? Guess what? He ended up meeting John and and went on this search to uh, learn about it. He wrote a book about it. um, Did a film about it. And now runs an organization called Inres. I N R E E S dot com out in France. And they do some really really good stuff out there. So you know. uh, So so getting back to that. What what are their thoughts on it? Publicly, I've heard them state that, you know, they being, you know, the, the collective office of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, that they really don't have enough knowledge about this uh, to, to make any uh, firm statements. You know, but what the, the Dalai Lama, uh, you know, has talked about is, you know, the 
Buddhist views will change based on as science changes. So if we find out some new information, if we find out uh, something else that we need to know, then you know they'll, they'll maybe be more vocal about their stance in it. But you know, my guess is somehow they come off of Sastafan and you know something came in for him at that point, and you know lo and behold, we now have an organization in France that's doing some really good work around this, and lo and behold, it's affected a lot of other people. So. You know, my guess is they know a lot more than what they really talk about. So when you when you said to put that um, part to the side, does that mean don't don't air that? I, I, I think you know what I think you can. Um, I think it's it's good information because I think if there's Buddhists out there that uh, that are freaked out freaked out about extraterrestrials, they I would say they shouldn't be, but it shouldn't be as um, it shouldn't be as freaky because here is something that actually. Uh, there's information that the, the public at large doesn't know uh, as it relates to Buddhism and extraterrestrials. Is there anything in this tornado of an interview that we uh, <laughs> that we haven't covered that um, that you wanted to get to? You know, I, I, I think this. I think one of the things. I mean, this is where I'm passionate about, and you know, it's on that blog spot. Is um, and give us your blog spot. Sure, it's www.ietevolve.blogspot. Dot com um, is the, the, in in my experiences, and again, I'm I'm, I'm only speaking from mine. Uh, you know, everyone's got different experiences, but you know, I think we're at the cusp as a as a world in creating a quantum leap in our human consciousness. And you know, some of us have been exposed to um, these different energies, but also the way that these beings go about either, you know, getting here if they're coming from somewhere else, uh, through whether it be their technology, how they communicate, you know, with each other, what they do. And I think these little pieces of information are really helpful for us to kind of look at and figure out and to see if there's something that we can learn from that. So it's not just so much about, oh, you know, what was the impact that it had on, on me personally, but, you know, how did they go about doing what they did? You know, if you were to kind of, like, put your head in their psychology for a minute, you know, is there something that we can learn from that to be able to help to create the quantum leap? And, um, I don't know, I think it's a really big piece that, you know, that, that I haven't seen um, many people look at, and maybe somebody has. I just don't know who they are yet. Okay. Susan Kornacki, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on the show. And I feel like if if you would come back again, we we should talk uh, we should talk experiences again and uh, right, yeah. flesh out some things. All right, that would be great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Hi, I'm Dennis McKenna, and you're listening to Jeff and Jeremy on Paratopia. So the Jeff. So the Jer. <laughs> <laughs> Idiots. Susan Kornacki, eh? Yeah. I think it was, a, it was a good introductory episode for her, you know? I mean, yeah. she's going to be back. You know that. So I, I think, uh, you know, just broadly covered where she stands on certain things and what she thinks about certain things. And I thought that the, um, you know, the, the EQ thing was uh, uh, kind of interesting, you know? I like those free-flowing ones, too, where you can just ask anything. Yeah, I just wish that, like, <laughs> 20 minutes of it didn't have to get cut out of the show. <laughs> I'm that sorry, would, but... That would have been nice. I won't be maligned. <laughs> <laughs> you will learn decorum. That's right. Huh. But uh, so much of what she said really did 
resonate with me. And certainly I'm sure people in the audience are going, wow, we've heard them talk about all that stuff. So mm. it's interesting to hear someone talk about what we've said and put it in different words and sort of, I mean, you know, her positivity about her experiences, um, even though she's had reservations and fear and all that stuff, but mainly it's this sort of positive positivity makes me think that you and I aren't uh, deeper than the average bear on this subject. We're, we're actually missing something. <laughs> what do you think we're missing? I don't know, but I mean, I, I think if, if these beings are using or were using fear because you're dense, I mean, if that's true, then I can extrapolate that something similar happened to me, maybe? I don't know. That means that we're the two dunces. <laughs> sitting in the corner that need to be slapped around to realize that this is you real. guys get to the back of the room right now <laughs> um well i mean if we're riding the uh alien short bus that's okay with me i i think i think again i don't i don't know i don't necessarily share a lot of our our guests whole thoughts. I mean, I think we, we definitely agree on certain aspects of this stuff, but I think um, the notion of positivity, it's it's based on the individual, I think. you know, It's based on the mindset of that individual and how the experience manifests for them. And, and, and again, not to say it's not a freestanding reality. I think it is, but I think the way that it relates to us, that's disgusting. <laughs> I'm, I'm playing guitar. That's it. No, come on! <laughs> Um, you know, I think I think <laughs> all I'm doing is eating yogurt, folks. Go ahead. Um, I think the way that it relates to us is, you know, is is individualized. It's it's tailor made. I mean, you know, and and if her uh, experience with this was all po- you know, or mostly positive, can't say that there's never been any uh, apprehension or. Uh, you know, those sort of feelings with her. I think she did say that there was some of that. Uh, but by and large, having these benign positive experiences, that just, I think that reflects upon her mentality as a person. Maybe there's just more courage on her part, more a- an ability to let go. Uh, I mean, my problem has long been letting go. And, and maybe some people don't have that problem, you know? And that's how it manifests for them. So it's tailor-made to the individual person. Yeah, but just imagine how different things would be if you could let go or how far you would get or whatever that means, what more there is to learn when that well, I mean, don't you, think that's, yeah, don't you think that's part of the process, though? I mean, I think that's decidedly part of what's going on mm-hmm. is learning how to let go of what you perceive to be some toehold on reality that you don't have. Right. <laughs> you know, or realizing that you have more to do with uh, what manifests in every way of your life than, than you realize, you know? I mean, how big a, a thing to miss would that be? I thought it was interesting that her, the big UFO event that happened where her sister called over to the window was at 2 or 3 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Once yeah. again, getting back to the magical hour of 3 a.m. Yeah. Whatever that's all about. And well, um, I thought the Dalai Lama stuff was interesting, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I mean, I don't know what to say to that, but... Um, I think it, it, it just goes a step further into what we've been saying, which is, you know, the deeper, more complex, uh, complex picture of all of this is kind of where people's attention should be focused, not on K2 
cases from the 1950s or contactees or, <laughs> you know, all of that stuff, government conspiracies and all that stuff. Uh, not that that all isn't interesting on its own, but as far as trying to, to get at this thing, you know, I, I think you've got to go uh, in that route that is um, a little unconventional and a little bit uh, – I, I, I saw uh, – somebody across the internet who had said something like that they weren't always comfortable with some of the topics and some of the places we went on this show. And I think, I think it behooves people to to sit back and go, okay, this isn't my normal thing. This isn't necessarily what I believe, but I'm at least going to give this a listen and see if any of it seems to make any semblance of order for me in the way that I view this. You know, if you're not willing to do that, I mean, number one, this is not the show for you. Uh, but number two, this may not be the subject of interest for you. Right. <laughs> you know, if you're not willing to explore the edges a little bit, you know, and you want to take this, uh, um, I don't know, this 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 stance of uh, you're you're trying to police everyone, or you're trying to. Uh, I mean, I, I went through that too. I, I went through that spot where. You know, this is important, and the people who are making light of it have to be exposed, and all of that, and. You know what? When you realize the bigger picture of this, you realize these people don't matter anyway because it's not even in the same realm of discussion, really. So they're irrelevant. It's not that you have to expose anything. They're completely irrelevant to the situation. So, um, you know, I, I'm definitely a lot more willing to explore the edges than I used to be. Well, and, in, and I've in, seen in effect, interesting things. You know, This podcast is a great equalizer because I, too – stirred the pot with that, you know, uh, why doesn't ufology have any sort of rules and regulations? Why doesn't it have peer review and all that sort of stuff? And I got some flack for that. Right. And, but ultimately, that in me comes from a place of, I'm an experiencer. Why, why am I the one that's marginal in this topic? Why is it being talked about by morons and not morons? <laughs> and they're both willing to share the same stage. To speak right. about that, and, and, and I'm the one that's marginal. Yeah, you know, it's just none of that makes sense. It's all Alice in Wonderland to me. But to be able to have right. a podcast and, and reach people sort of fills that niche, I think. You know, the sure. little niche called caring about what comes out of your mouth. <laughs> the little niche called caring about what the public is presented as valid evidence of what this thing could be. All you can do is what you can do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, you're not going to... You know, I think both of us realize. I think, I think for me at least, I had the, um, I don't know, I kind of had the mindset that you know, if I, if I took certain actions in this field to do certain things, that other people might pick up on and run with it, and that it might change things. I mean, you have that delusion of grandeur that you can change this, you can make this happen, and you can, you you can have an impact on those things in a way. I mean, I, I see it. I just see it like even in, in thinking about like even Wes Owsley, who was on our show, who's worked for NASA and the cosmonauts and all that. I mean, just the fact that someone of that caliber listens to this show, what is <laughs> right. the butterfly effect of that? Or this woman on Facebook who said that uh, she told me that the whole reason she's going to study Reiki energy is because of me. I didn't respond hmm. to that because I don't know what to say to that. You know, like, thanks. Great. Uh <laughs> But, I mean, really, that's amazing, isn't it? You know, the fact that somebody would listen to your stories and, and that would so affect their lives that they're going to make a, a giant turn like that or, you know, mm. pick up a study like that when it may yeah. not even be that. <laughs> but be that as well, it may. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. But yeah. so it's the culmination of all those little things that you just sort of get the peripheral feeling for that that are the effect. You know, it's not what you want the effect to be. Unfortunately, it's whatever the effect is, but it's definitely there. Well, you just hope that whatever you say or do has a, a positive reaction for somebody. Right. You know, you certainly don't want it to have the opposite effect, which is, again, goes back to the notion of the, the Greerisms and that, that exist across the field. You know, I, I don't think that that's a particularly positive thing. And, and, uh, I've always been like this super critical guy of everything and everyone. And when the minute that, Somebody used to start talking about energy. I would be like you know, s- switched off. Well, I I'd get that way. Off. Like when she talks about energy. Well, not even energy so much because I have to say energy for this thing that's in me. Um, right. Because it's that or possession. <laughs> not going to admit to that. No, but when she says things like vibration, like raise your vibrational level and all that, like that makes me cringe. But that's just my aversion to that type of language, um, because usually it's used wrongly. But really, I think she's just talking about the same thing that you and I talk about. She's just using that language that grates on my nerves, and that's my own issue. That's not hers, you know? Right. Well, I mean, again, this all does come down to language and communication of feelings and ideas that aren't necessarily the norm. And... um, I think you have to pick the easiest terminology to use without turning people off. And unfortunately, what what, what was it you said about? Uh, or I think you've got it on our homepage. Something about you know the New Agers use words like this, and that they don't use them in the right context, and therefore it sounds airy fairy, wishy washy, whatever. And and what we're doing with this, I don't know that we've even done this. <laughs> I don't know that we've done this or not. But the notion of taking some of these terms back into a a more ground-based or realistic way, I guess, is... I is, think taking is, the subject yeah. back in a realistic way. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully. You know, I mean, I, I, I think we've we've definitely explored some edges already, you know, this season. This is, what, the third show of this new one. So, this is the fourth. I mean, this is the fourth? Yep. We had Colin Andrews. We had Graham Hancock. We had... Ghost Hunt. Oh, the ghost hunt, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you know, I I think already this season we're still exploring those edges a little bit. And, um, I mean, again, the highlight for me so far has been Colin's show. I think that was... Well, and to that end, and I, do you want to uh, talk about any of the strange goings-on that, that have happened after the episode related to... Sure, you? here's one. Here's one for you. <laughs> I, I've communicated a lot with uh, with Colin since the show. And um, there, there was well, there was discussion of the symbol that I've talked about on other shows that I haven't publicized. I won't expose yet. But uh, you know, I was telling you and Colin that here lately, I've just kind of had the I don't know the gut reaction to kind of say it's time to turn it loose and just let people see it. I don't know when that'll be, but Colin is is going to be coming back to talk about symbology and crop circle formations and this sort of thing and. And I may do it after that. I'm not exactly sure, but weirdness since the show. Yeah, I've got. Uh, well, wait, isn't the weirdness around that the fact that you told him about that, and it turns out he was doodling something somewhere? Yeah, similar? I mean, he, I don't want to get too into that because it, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to have to describe things that I don't want to talk about or show yet. But he doodled something that was not awfully dissimilar from what my symbol looked like to a certain degree, uh, an element of it. 
so, yeah, I mean, it was a little weird because immediately he said, uh, I mentioned this symbol about uh, how it showed up and I conveyed to him, you know, what, what was going on at the time. And the first words out of his mouth after this, he's like, can I just ask, did this involve triangles? <laughs> I said, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, well, how interesting. I'll like to see it. And then when I showed it to him, he, uh, you know, he just wrote me back. He said, well, here's my page of doodles and here's what I drew. And it's not by any means exact, but it certainly, you know, has, uh, has a commonality element to it, which, which again was interesting. But since that show, I mean, literally the next night I started, uh, you know, I go up and go to bed, and when I go to bed, my my ritual is brush my teeth, go upstairs, turn the electric blanket on, go down, watch TV for ten or fifteen minutes, turn the electric blanket off, get into bed, and um, and put my my iPod on. And usually, I let the iPod just sit on my nightstand. I have really long headphones, and uh, I'll put one earbud in. I don't know how else to explain this, and I know how it's going to sound, and I don't want anybody's dirty minds taking over here, but I've been hearing a very short, maybe three-second duration uh, hum or or vibration that seems to be coming from my pillow, as if it's almost in my ear. I can feel it on my face. It's it's a strong enough hum that it's it's vibrating, and it made my nose tickle when it happened one time. The next night, it happened again. Uh, and it was followed. It was just, it's a short, and that's it. I don't sleep with my cell phone. You know, there's no adult toys around. And uh, <laughs> Lisa will love that one. And, uh, you know, there, there's nothing, there's nothing that should be making that noise. And I've not heard it before. But uh, the last time I heard it, it was a, a, a solid, you know, three second tone with four short after that. Boop, 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 boop. You know, so I've been sleeping with the the, the digital vo- voice recorder under my pillow, just in hopes of of trying to hear it or re- you know get it onto some kind of audio device. But so far, since I've been doing that, I haven't heard it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then on a second note, uh, my wife has talked about in our house, in our living room, in Jeremy's fart chair, <laughs> uh, when she sits in that that big leather chair that I have. Um, She's a couple of times has been genuinely freaked out and has been telling me that there is a light up near the ceiling, just up and to the left a little bit of the chair. And um, well, the, what, I mean, the, the first time she described it to me, she's like, "I see it in my peripheral, but when I look right at it, it's not there." But yet, I can sit and look at the TV, and I can very clearly see this thing in my peripheral vision above. And um, I, I never saw it. Um, uh, you know, and she, she got kind of aggravated at me. That she's like, "How can you not see that? It's it's not small. It's it's not subtle." But I didn't. And um, last night I was up late. My back was killing me. Um, I think uh, Jeremy's back problem was uh, taken from Jeremy and given to me. <laughs> well, they don't, they don't uh, know that story yet. <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, but uh, <clears throat> anyway, I'm sitting on the couch and. Uh, I'm watching TV, and it's it's it is rather late. It's probably you know, close to that two or three o'clock magic time again. And I see something in my peripheral in that area she's talked about of the ceiling, and it looks like uh, it's it's dark. It's not a light. It's dark, and uh, and it looks like a rounded triangle, very rounded, and and to the point where the back end of this thing has no. 
there's not two points. There's only one round back, like a like an ice cream cone shape, but very rounded on the front too. So you can just you know basically picture a big circle, little circle, and they're connected. And it's solid. It seems to have a, a marbleized kind of look to it. That's black with some sort of like brown, rusty color marbleization to it. And in the back end of it, where the rounder, bigger part would be, in the center of that uh, is a white light. And it's just moving very slowly. And I look at it, and one, two, gone. So I did get to lay eyes directly on this. It was flat. It was rounded-edged. It seemed to be uh, just very slowly moving across the ceiling. And I said, right out loud, I said, now that's fucking weird. And I looked back up at the TV, and in my peripheral, I could see this white light about the size of a baseball um, near the ceiling. And it was it had a scintillation effect to it. It was not excessively bright. It was um, about the density of what, what you would call almost like a flashlight brightness if you shone a uh, shone a, a flashlight on the ceiling that kind of fuzzy white light and it was uh, not constant and uh and it went out and it came back i could literally sit and watch the tv and monitor where this thing was and it too was kind of creeping towards the tv and i i mean i got up i looked around um I'm trying to see, you know, we got curtains in the front of the house. Is there anything outside? There is no reason whatsoever for this thing to be where it was. It's not a reflection from outside. It's not the TV, the TV excuse me. It's not my watch reflecting light from the lamp or anything like that. So I went in, I brushed my teeth because it did freak me out a little bit. And I went back out. I stood at the front of the chair and, um, I'm just looking at the ceiling. I'm thinking, you know, put my hand towards up there. I'm feeling around. I don't feel anything. It's not cold. It's not hot. It's not anything. And uh, as I drop my head down to, you know, normal viewing level, something black about a little higher than waist high moved by my right-hand side really quickly, like a, you know, really quick blurry object. I didn't see what the hell it was. And I said, that's it. I'm upstairs. I'm going to bed. So there has been... Um, well, you forgot an element of the, uh, the sound story, which is that the reason you um, had started talking to Colin about that is that... Uh, I don't even know if this should be public knowledge, but one of the other family members of one of the people who we had talked about uh, mm-hmm. had had some sort of... Right? Some sort of tone in their ear or something similar to what you were talking about? I think, yeah, there was something about that, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't related. It was some related thing, and then you went, "Oh, yeah, that's happening to me." And then you I don't, I don't even, that. yeah, I don't even remember exactly what that story was all about. I mean, we we corresponded quite a bit after the show. You know, basically, I, I I'm just asking Colin about all sorts of things, like 3 a.m. Like, um, is there any? I'm I'm just looking for all kinds of correlations. What could be similar about different different parts of the paranormal? Right. Uh, study so i mean everything from ghost activity to to ufos to crop circles you know what are the commonalities what are the connective tissues if there's any and you know slowly but surely through emails we found out there's quite a few so but yeah i mean that that tone is really strange i i still trying to figure out what the hell it is i uh, my first thought was is it a vibration from the hard drive on the uh, ipod 
um, cycling and stopping. And uh, I've, I've literally laid the iPod under my pillow and laid there and listened. And it's not that. Um, so I, I, got, I got a new good answer for that. I don't, I don't know what that could be. Here's my little unfolding. Yeah. Uh, and I talked about this part of this on the message board. And um, I'm already sick of talking about it out loud, but I'll say it one more time for the cheap seats. Well, as we all know, I have horrible back problems that were livable until I helped my friend uh, Dan move foolishly. And then I basically slipped a disc again to where it was pretty much impossible to sit still, sitting up straight, hurt to lie on my left side. I had one of those, you know, those, uh, those heating pads that you wear around for eight hours a day and, you know popping Advil and all that sort of stuff. So what was this? A couple of nights after the, uh, yeah, the podcast, um, Mm. I had, uh, well, it was in the morning and I was waking up like I was awake, but I didn't open my eyes. My eyes were just really heavy, but my body was ready to go. But I was in the middle of this dream where I was trying to figure out what it was that Pat Delgado was actually doing when he was cupping his hand and, and pushing it toward Colin Andrews, uh, stomach, and he said, you know, this happened out in the field. He felt like he was receiving instruction. He didn't know what he was doing. So in the dream, I'm basically trying to, I'm asking what that is. Uh, and I don't remember the details of the dream until the very end of it, which was about the time I wanted to wake up, but decided not to, to let it play out. I'm in this movie theater. The movie has ended. Sitting to my right is this giant, either Mexican man or Native American. Um, I, I couldn't uh, see his eyes. I could just see black where where his face should be except for his chin which had stubble and he had long sort of uh, black curly hair and a big black hat and he crossed in front of me to leave the theater and i sort of yanked on his jacket and pulled him down and i whispered something like um you know i know what you are or i know what you can do you can do magic can you teach me hmm. and he puts his uh i guess it would be left hand he cups it he doesn't put it on my stomach but he cups it over my stomach and I feel, in real life, <laughs> I feel electricity shoot through my stomach. And if you've ever had physical therapy where you've had electricity shot into your muscle, um, then you know what I'm talking about, except times a thousand. I mean, the inside of my stomach was just sizzling with electricity, and it, it didn't feel good, and I was scared. But I decided, instead of being scared, instead of giving into that, I just blurted out in the dream. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, do that again. Show, show me what you're doing. Do that again. And he does it again, and I feel it again, and he leaves, and I open my eyes. And I'm lying there in bed, and my back is completely numb from, you know, well, just my lower back is completely numb. Uh, Now, this had happened to my stomach, so what the correlation there is, I don't know. But my back is completely numb, and that finally wears off. And I get up, and my back is healed. (laughs) It's been healed ever since. Uh, Now... I then, uh, you know, I don't know if any of this is related, but um, two nights ago, I won't tell you the dream because it's just, you know, it's, it's a long dream. Uh, but basically in the dream, I was shot in the stomach. And uh, it was the kind of thing where, I mean, it was one of those really real things where you could feel it and, and I'm dying and I know I'm going to die and I've got to explain to my mom why this happened and, you know, all of this. And I start... Uh, as I'm in, in bed, I start coughing and I cough up. I mean, I can feel it in my throat. It feels like a bullet wrapped inside of a membrane, like it's coming up through now, and, you know, and maybe I swallowed a bug or something. It's possible. 
but it was so huge and it so felt like a bullet in my throat coming up that like a couple more coughs and I probably would have coughed up a bullet. Like that was the feeling, but instead I swallowed it back down because it just wasn't coming all the way through my throat. So I thought that that was odd, but you know, whatever odd, but nothing. Uh, but then last night I, um, let the meditation energy go and, and you know, I did all these things that, that, uh, it's never done before. And a lot of it was concentrating on my stomach and on my back. Uh, interestingly enough. And then I was thirsty at one point, and instead of just sort of breaking out of this and going to get a drink, you know, as soon as I thought, well, I'm thirsty, this energy walked me into the kitchen, opened the, uh, the door to the fridge, and I've got a water jug in there, and it took a couple of steps backward with the fridge open and just started examining, like, looking at the water, and then moved closer and, like, got in there and started doing these hand gestures around the water jug, picked it up with my left hand, which I'm not left-handed, so that was interesting, and took the cap off. I drank the water, put it back. The end. Went uh, back to the living room, did some more exercises or whatever, and then I snapped out of it and went to bed. Somewhere in the middle of the night, um, I woke up feeling really happy, blissed out. I don't know what the word is. But just spontaneously woke up in a joyous state, and I could feel whatever this energy is. I, it, it, this is not really possible to describe, but it was almost like I could feel it superimposed over me and through me, but not just physically, like like me. <laughs> uh, like I had merged with it or something. I don't know what that even means. And I'm saying all of this as though it's related. I don't know that it is. I'm just putting out the chronology, and you can relate this however you want. The next thing in this chronology is I get up in the morning and I have a little battle in my head over what I'm going to eat because I'm starving and I really want McDonald's, which is right across the street. But my my conscience is going, no, you don't want that. Aren't we done with that? And so I have this little battle in my head about eating meat. Uh, and I'm like, but I love meat. It's great. Um, but something in me is going, mm, you're done with that. You don't want that anymore. So, but I say, screw it. Screw you, me. I, I decide I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to Trader Joe's. I'm going to buy a thing of coffee because I'm out of coffee. And then I'm going to go to McDonald's like I wanted and get breakfast. And uh, instead, I go to Trader Joe's. I buy $70 worth of vegetarian food. And I don't go to McDonald's. <laughs> so, so I've been a vegetarian since this morning, mysteriously. The question is, did you buy coffee? Yes. Let's see you kick that shit. Meditation boy. Yeah, well, the thing is, I mean, I could have. I, I, I don't feel like I even really needed to drink it no. this morning, but it was gingerbread coffee, so I was like, mm, I've got to try that. Mm, so yeah. my, my curiosity got the better of me. Oh. But yeah, uh, so that's that. And part of that, at least, oh, well, here's the part that's related to Colin Andrews. Perhaps all of it is. Perhaps all of it spouts from that one healing thing is that I wrote to Colin Andrews uh, about that dream. And, uh, he was like, holy crap. And he wrote Pat Delgado's daughter, uh, Jan, who he, he put the, her email up on his website with my email. So I don't feel bad saying this out loud, but basically what she said was, uh, Pat Delgado, uh, would do this hand gesture toward people's stomachs to heal them. And he had some sort of spiritual guide who was native American and when she asked him how it was he knew how to do this, uh, he just said, don't ask. He was just, he just basically said, don't, don't, don't ask, uh, just accept it. 
So there you go. So was I visited by Pat Delgado's Indian guide? I don't know, but that's weird. Fascinating stuff. And definitely whatever it was had a real physical effect. Like once again, I'm, you know, sort of getting back to ayahuasca and that sort of stuff. It's like, it it almost doesn't matter if you're metaphorically seeing a snake in a forest or, uh, you know, and it's a spirit or whatever. If there is some practical effect to it, the effect is the effect, you know? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So I guess we will end the show on this note. And um, if you're one of those listeners who doesn't like it when we um, attack other shows who attack us, well, we're not going to do that. But we are going to have a little uh, rational discussion about something another show said about us. Um, so if that kind of thing doesn't float your boat, then the episode is officially over for you. You may go for everyone else. For everyone else, it is, a, it is else. a sour, yeah, a sour note. <laughs> yes, for everyone else, there is a sour note left over. Uh, right. No, but we, we we do, I think, feel the need to address something that was put out there that was misinformation about us. So go for it, Jeff. Um, well, I mean, essentially, what happened is 